This morning, our sermon text, as we come near now to the end of our series on the epistle to the Hebrews, our sermon text is found in Hebrews 13, verses 8 through 16. This is the very last chapter of Hebrews. I invite you now to listen carefully again once more to God's holy and errant word, holy and inerrant word. This passage is printed for you on the back of your order of worship, if you'd like to read along there. Listen now to God's word. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods which have not benefited those devoted devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him, let us go to Jesus, outside the camp, and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true, and it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all the holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us now by your Spirit to hear this portion of your word and to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, that we may embrace and even more, evermore, hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As we come to our text this morning, it's important to remember the situation of this early Christian letter. At the time in which Hebrews was written, the church of Jesus Christ was, at best, a fringe, a very fringe religious and social movement. Baptized Christians at this time numbered only at most in the thousands, and they were scattered in various uh, cities and very, very small communities around the Mediterranean world. Christianity was a veritable drop in the bucket of the Greco-Roman religious world. Several weeks ago, I read a book on early um, church history um, by a, a historian entitled, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian? in the first three centuries. Why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? It's a, it's a 
interesting question. It's a, it's, a, it's a necessary question. And indeed, the growth of the early church is completely inexplicable, absolutely inexplicable. Historians have no explanation for it. There's no precedent for a religious movement like this, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and the strangely compelling message of the death and resurrection of a crucified Jew who also was, as his followers claimed, the son of God. You see, the historians asked that question, why did anyone become a Christian at all? Because there were no social advantages of any kind in becoming a Christian in the early days of our church. It was nothing like the world in which we live today, at least in this nation at this time. To be baptized in the first decades of the church's life was much more like the experience of what it is to be baptized today in a place like Saudi Arabia than what we experience here in this country when we follow Jesus. It was that kind of thing. At least some of those early Christian converts experienced violent persecution, of course. We know that from the letter that the first readers um, had themselves of Hebrews had themselves already experienced the loss of property and imprisonment and homelessness. And it's certainly possible that some of them had also been killed. But even if they weren't violently persecuted like that, every Christian in the early days of the church was ostracized in some way from the community in which they belonged, in which they had grown up. Just as Jesus prophesied, to follow him meant the estrangement of wives from husbands, of children from parents, of siblings from one another. The pressure to turn back from your baptism because of the ostracization from your family and your community and your workplace and your business connections and your old friends. The pressure to turn back from your baptism must have been immense. A daily struggle for those early Christians. All of that difficulty, you see, would go away. It would stop if only you turned your back on Jesus and the baptism you had received in his name. This letter to the Hebrews is likely primarily addressed to Jewish Christians in particular. And for these men and women, the temptation perhaps was even stronger to abandon their faith. Because during the first 40 years of the church's life, when this letter was written, the sacrificial worship of Israel at the temple in Jerusalem continued unabated. I mean, I mean think about that for a moment. You've grown up as a Jew... You've participated in the worship of Israel. You've been to the temple. And now you've left it. But it continues on. And next to the glory and pomp and power of the temple, one of the great wonders of the ancient world, Christian worship must have seemed so outwardly insubstantial. Right? Worship at the temple meant being surrounded by immense crowds who believed as you did, who said the same words that you did. It meant gazing on the beauty of the, the gold and the carved wood of the temple itself. It meant seeing the, the blood of animals spilled to give you a dramatic picture of the atonement for your sins. In contrast, Christian worship at this time took place in homes. There were no churches. Small little groups of believers singing and praying together, often early, early, early in the morning or late at night 
So those Christians who were slaves could also be there and worship as well. Listening to the scriptures simply read and explained. Singing, praying, eating and drinking a little bread, a little wine. It is in this context that the writer to the Hebrews writes and tells his readers, now faith is the conviction, I'm sorry, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. You see, these men and women who heard those phrases for the first time, they knew what he was talking about, right? They felt the truth of those words in their bones. It described their everyday experience that faith was the conviction of things not seen. And in response to this pressure, this immensely difficult pastoral situation, all of this suffering and hardship, what does the apostle who writes the letter to the Hebrews do from beginning to end to his readers, for his readers? It's it's actually a very simple thing what he does in this letter in many ways. Hebrews is both, on one hand, very, very simple letter. It's also complicated, certainly in some ways as well, but it's also very, very simple. All the apostle is doing from beginning to end is telling his readers again and again about the glory of Jesus. That's what he's doing. That's it. That's his pastoral strategy to convince his readers to continue and persist and persevere in their faith. He just tells them again and again about Jesus. Hebrews is without a doubt the most radically Jesus-focused letter of all the epistles in the New Testament. You see, in chapter 12, the apostle famously instructs his readers to fix their eyes on Jesus. But really, this is what he's been doing for them throughout the whole letter, right? Hebrews begins with the apostle describing how Jesus is the true and eternal Son of God, the one by whom God has fully and finally revealed himself. He then goes on in the next chapters to tell about how Jesus took upon our flesh to deliver us from the slavery of death, By his death and resurrection, he then talks about how Jesus has spilled his own blood to perfectly atone for our sin. And how as our high priest, he has actually entered now God's own presence as a new and living way that we might go there with him. That he might intercede for all those who belong to him and that he does this forever on our behalf. Towards the end of his letter, he reminds his readers of how, though, how although they might feel alone in this context that they find themselves worshiping in these tiny little communities, they are actually part of something much larger, a great cloud of witnesses, a, a community of men and women who have gone before them, who have followed Jesus ever since the earliest days of creation itself, beginning with Adam and Eve and Seth and Enoch. And so on. And now, as he draws his letter to a close, the apostle employs the same strategy that he has utilized throughout his whole letter. That's what he's doing here in our passage this morning. He is telling his readers once more about Jesus. And and beloved, there's a lesson here for us in that. right? Whatever the temptation that exists in your life today, Whatever that is, whatever difficulty that you are experiencing, whatever your doubts are, whatever the grief is that you're carrying, friend, what you need above all things is to see Jesus. 
to fix your eyes upon him, to have your eyes fixed upon him. That's what you need. One thing I have asked of the Lord, David says in Psalm 27. One thing, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And why? That I might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, David says. What David is talking about there, friends, is gazing upon the wonder and the glory and the power and the loveliness of Jesus. That's what he wants. That's what he desires. He knows that that is at the heart of what he is made for. And that that is the thing that will set him free in all of the rest of his life. Beloved, this is the Christian answer in response to suffering, in response to temptation, in response to death itself. It is to fix our eyes on Jesus again and again and again. To commune with him. Day by day in the means of grace that he gives us all the days of our life. Until finally in the resurrection of the dead we see him. Fully and finally face to face. The apostle begins his passage this morning by emphasizing the eternal changelessness of Jesus. Jesus Christ, he says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the unshakable foundation of our faith, friends, and all the changes of our lives, that Jesus is the same as he has always been and as he will always be, steadfast in his love, always faithful in his presence and care, unchanging in his power and strength and everlasting life. And it is because of the steadfastness of Jesus that the apostle says, therefore do not be led away. By diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart, he says, to be strengthened by grace. Not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. The food that he is talking about here is sacrificial food. Um, it, it refers to the rites of Israel. And what the apostle was referring to here is the temptation these early Jewish Christians faced to return to Judaism. To abandon Jesus and return to the sacrificial rites of the temple that they had grown up with. That they knew intimately. That were still carrying on as this letter was written. Because the temple had not yet been destroyed. But while we, friends, might not be tempted to return to Judaism or to go to Judaism for the first time. And of course there is no temple. There are no sacrifices being offered um, in this age Uh, because of the action of our Lord Jesus and the fulfillment of his prophecy, still we are certainly at different times, like these early Christians, tempted to drift away from Jesus, to turn away from the church that he has established, the means of grace that he has given, to go in a different direction in our lives. So much of Christian discipleship, beloved, it's simply this, it's simply staying put. It's simply clinging to Jesus, right? holding on fast, not being led away from him. This is a a constant refrain um, in the letter to the Hebrews. Don't wander away. Don't turn away. Don't fall away. Hold fast. Don't give in to something that promises an easier life or promises less suffering or or less difficulty or, or less complication. No, keep holding on to Jesus. The apostle then goes on in verses 10 to 12 
to expand on his argument um, that he's developing in this passage. He says to his readers, we, meaning those who belong to Christ, we have an altar which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Who are those who serve the tent? The priests of Israel, right? The high priest and all of the priestly uh, men who served. He says, we actually have an altar that is for us and not for them. That they can't even touch. We, and he goes on to say, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. He's making an interesting point there. He's saying there were some sacrificial rites, of course, and and um, Israelite religion where the priests could commune and, and eat part of the sacrificial animal after it had been offered to the Lord, but not the sin offering, not on the Day of Atonement. Those animals, their blood was shed in the holy place, and their bodies and their skin and their dung even were taken outside the camp and burned with fire. They were not able to commune with the Lord by eating of those uh, animals that had been offered as a sin offering. But he fascinatingly says this. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Do you see the the argument that the apostle is laying out here, friends? He's saying those who serve the the tent are are the priests of Israel, who even as the apostle writes are sacrificing animals in the temple. But the apostle is telling his readers that even in the apparently insignificant acts of Christian worship, they are actually being given to access something much better, to an altar that those priests can never approach in all their religious activity, the altar of heaven. Whereas in chapter 9, he has already explained, Jesus has gone up for them into the true dwelling place of God, the true temple, and he is living and ministering for them on on their behalf. The reason for this dramatic reversal of reality, the apostle explains, is because Jesus has in himself become the true sacrifice. He has fulfilled the promise of atonement that was communicated through the death of animals in the Old Testament, right? As we heard in our reading from Leviticus this morning, um, on the day of atonement, a bull and a goat were sacrificially killed as a sin offering to atone, to to cover um, the sins of the high priest and the sins of all the people of Israel. And after their blood was sprinkled in the holy place on um, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, the bodies of those animals were then taken out outside the camp and utterly destroyed. As Leviticus says, the skin and the flesh and even the dung of the slain bull and the slain goat were then burned up with fire. And it is for this reason, the apostle argues and teaches us that Jesus suffered and died, not in the temple courts, but outside, not only outside the temple, but outside Zion, outside the holy city, outside the gates of Jerusalem, that he might complete in his own body the atoning sacrifice all the way to the end And sanctify, that is, make holy all of those who belong to him. And in this way, I think the apostle is revealing to us that the words of Psalm 118, 
which were on Jesus' own lips, that they take an even deeper meaning. The words of Psalm 18, 118 that say, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. For Jesus being destroyed outside the gates of the city was not a sign as his enemies thought at the time of God's rejection of him, but of the sufficiency and power and glory of his atoning death. And here, after he has set up the argument thus far, the apostle makes the great turn in his passage. He's been talking about Jesus, explaining for them the glory and wonder and power of what Jesus has done in his atoning death, and now he turns and begins to apply that to his readers. Therefore, he says, therefore, because of what Christ has done, In verses 13 to 14, therefore, since Jesus suffered outside the gates, away from the apparent glory and power of the temple, away from the apparent blessedness of the holy city, therefore, he says, let us go to him outside the camp. Let us go to where Jesus is, outside the camp, and bear the reproach Bear the shame that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, the apostle says. But we seek the city to come. Again, it's a play on Jerusalem itself. Here we have no lasting city, right? Jerusalem isn't a lasting city. It's going to be destroyed in just a couple decades. We seek the city that is to come. The city whose foundations, as he says in chapter 11, are built by God himself. You see, this for the apostle is the heart of the matter. Although it may be tempting for these early Jewish Christians to believe that the place of power and glory, um, the place, I'm sorry, the place of power and stability is the glory and pomp of the temple. It might be tempting to believe that. It might be tempting to believe that the way of safety is actually returning to Judaism. But the apostle is saying, no, actually, that is exactly the opposite. The reverse is true, friends. Faith is the convictions of things not seen. It is in the place of apparent rejection and isolation and reproach. Outside the camp, outside the gates of the city, suffering with Jesus. That is actually the place where you are safe. That is the place where you are secure. That is the place of permanence. And so he concludes his argument in verses 15 to 16. He says, then through him, that is through Jesus, the one who suffers outside the camp, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice. He's using that same kind of sacrificial language again, but in a different way. To continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, Jesus' name, the name of Christ. Do not neglect, he says, to do good and to share what you have. For such, what? Sacrifices are pleasing to God. It's fascinating to me that the apostle here tells us that the sacrifice of praise to God that we are offer is um, the fruit of our lips that acknowledge the name of Jesus. Right? As we acknowledge the name of Jesus, we are offering up a sacrifice of praise to God. And, and here, we, I think the apostle is deliberately echoing the words and teaching of Jesus. 
who taught his disciples, as we heard in Luke 9, that the way in which they would acknowledge the name of Jesus in their lives is by taking up their crosses and denying themselves and following him. Friends, do you know the first time the cross is mentioned in the Gospels is not in reference to Jesus, but in reference to those who would follow after him? It's the first time he talks about the cross is in reference to what it means to acknowledge his name before the world. To take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him. And it stands out to me also that according to the apostle, the Christian way of life is embodied. Not only in going to Jesus, where he suffers outside the gates of the city, but actually in that place, bearing the reproach, the shame, the suffering with him. There's a mutuality to the calling here. He's not just saying, Jesus did this, so you're good. He's saying, Jesus did this, so go and do it with him. He says, go and bear the reproach and the shame outside the gates of the camp where Jesus suffered as well. You see, friends, in this way, those who follow Jesus... Those who acknowledge his name are given the dignity and honor and glory, and I'm choosing those words intentionally, the dignity and glory and honor of suffering, not alone, but with Christ himself. Sharing actually in some way in the affliction and trauma and destruction Of Jesus' own body. Friends, I mean those words. The deepest dignity and honor that you or I can receive in this life is to suffer with Christ. To go outside the gates and bear the shame with him that he endured. I mean, this is the culmination of the argument of Hebrews. This is where he wants his readers to get to. This is the maturity he longs for them to have. To see that this is the way of life that they are called to. And remember, beloved, the words of the apostle that he said earlier in chapter 2. That Jesus is crowned with glory and honor, not in spite of, but because of the suffering of death. That's what he says in chapter 2. That Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, has now been crowned with glory and honor because of. His suffering and death. You see, the cross is where Jesus is lifted up. His crucifixion is actually his glory, not his shame. And we are those who are called into that same cruciform-shaped life, that cross-shaped life, that crucifixion-shaped life. We are those, beloved, who are given the gift, and I mean it, the gift of the strange glory of the cross. So what does this mean in the end? At the very least, it means what verse 16 says. It means laying it out there for us. It means to do good and to share what we have. It means not to love money, as he said earlier. To give it away. To welcome strangers into your home. To go and find those in the body who are in need, who are imprisoned or afflicted in some other way, and to care for them and minister to them. It means to love one another with brotherly affection as he has already argued in Hebrews 13. Certainly that is part of what it means for us to bear 
the reproach that Jesus endured. But the particulars of this calling are going to be different from each one of us. The cross is laid on each of our shoulders, friends, but it takes a different form for us all. For the original readers of this letter, going out to Jesus, as the apostle says, and bearing the reproach that he endured, it meant primarily remaining steadfast in their baptisms and not returning to the apparent safety of Judaism, despite the loss of property and social status and even perhaps their own lives as well. But the question that comes down through the ages to you, brother or sister, is what is the cross that Jesus has placed upon your shoulders? He has given you one. You can be certain. He does it for all of those who follow him. There are no exceptions to this rule. And this question of your cross is a question that you must wrestle with if you are going to follow in the way of Christ. Because there is a cross prepared for you. Make no mistake. If you are to be his disciple. He has promised this. Perhaps it is forgiving the sin. Even the grievous sin. The horrific sin of someone who has wronged you. Maybe a spouse. Or an ex-spouse. Or a sibling. Or a friend. Even an enemy. Perhaps that is part of the cross you are called to bear. Perhaps it is serving someone who is impossible to serve. Right? Someone who doesn't even understand everything that you are giving up to try to help them. It's so hard. Perhaps it is simply continuing on in your faith in the face of persistent physical afflictions, chronic bodily pain and suffering that sometimes feels completely isolating. Perhaps it is resisting the temptation to sin. Even though that sin seems to promise life and happiness. And the way of holiness feels excruciating. Perhaps it is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And clinging to Jesus. Just holding on to him. In the midst of your depression and your despair. And your grief. Perhaps it is simply laboring quietly in a place where your faithful work often feels unnoticed and unappreciated and unvalued by those whom you serve. All of these ways, beloved, are good ways to die. All of these ways and many more that we might imagine are good ways holy ways to die. All of these, beloved, are beautiful ways to take up your cross and follow your Savior. All of these are magnificent ways, beloved, to be crowned with the glory and honor of going outside the camp and bearing with Jesus the reproach that he endured. But holy brother, Holy Sister, whatever way Jesus is calling you to follow him, know this. Going after Jesus into death has always been and will always be until his return, the heart of the Christian life. 
And it is because Jesus has gone before us on this path and adorned this way of life with his own presence that we can be sure and certain that the way of the cross is actually, truly, really the only safe way, the only way of life and peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.